calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, S.E. Fleenor, and I'm super pumped to be here with a very special episode. We have an incredible guest host with us here today. Uh, the one, the only, Danny Lore. Hi, Danny. Hey, S.E. How you doing? Oh, I'm just, I'm a smitten kitten. I'm so happy to be here today. I'm so happy that to have is, you with us. That is the world's best phrase, and I'm going to fold it into my own uh, <laughs> vocab. Enjoy. Uh, <laughs> And it's a perfect day to fold it in, actually, speaking of smitten kittens, because we have the most excellent guest ever. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, the wonderful, brilliant, and creative Sarah Century. Well, as a new guest to a former guest of the show, I would like to say hello to you, Danny. Of course, hello to you always, Essie. Hello, and hello. hello to you, audience who might know my voice from other things, like always being on this podcast. <laughs> oh, but the turns have tabled. Oh, I'm on the other side of the microphone, even though that technically makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to make it make sense literally for an hour yesterday. I was like, other side of the microphone, right? That's what Sarah will be. Because this is how I, you know, cope as a human is I think about the next day just a lot. The day yeah. before. Uh, but yes. Oh, my God. You're here and you're a guest. And Sarah, why are you a guest? I, don't, I What's going on? What's up? Well, you'd have to ask the people in charge about that. But <laughs> I guess I can say. No that. one's in charge here. <laughs> yeah. Come on. Let's be real. Yeah, the hierarchy is not a thing. But um, <laughs> we have um, a book. I And I, I don't know why I said we, because I'm just talking about myself. Normally, I'm talking about all of us. I, I guess we all have books. But today, we're talking about the book, A Small Light and Other Stories, which is my book that was put out through Weird Punk Books pretty recently. <laughs> yeah, it's less than a, the, than a month old at the time of recording. Yeah. Tomorrow's so the one-month birthday. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about this book. What kind of book is it? 
what words oh, are in. Oh, there are words in this. No, <laughs> no pictures, by the way. I'm incredibly impressed. <laughs> Make no mistake. This is a book with words in it. There is a bunch of short stories that I've written over the last few years, and it is horror short stories, most definitely. Um, Just make no mistake on that. It is scary stuff, but it also is about, I don't know, stuff like birds taking over the planet, hopefully, and (laughs) ants taking over the planet, hopefully, (laughs) and things like that, I guess. I like how you said that as if it was in opposition to the horror story, but I've read those (laughs) stories and I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's very ambiguous who I want to win in these stories. (laughs) (laughs) Personally, I think we, we, the readers won. So it's all good. Yeah, that's true. We really did. Thank you. Well, you know, Sarah, I've been trying to remember how you put it because I was like, oh, I'm going to say what kind of horror Sarah does. But one time you and I were talking about another project we're working on. You were like, okay, Essie does this sort of like horror comedy writing. And I do this. And I cannot remember the words you said. But these are the words I remember. And maybe you can sequence them. Feelings. (laughs) Queer. Sad. Those are the... If you just say those three things, right? Like, I think that that pretty much sums it up. (laughs) Feelings, queer, sad. (laughs) <laughs> but scary because of those things, right? Yes. So like that's basically it. Existential crisis, maybe like kind of overarching <laughs> the well, um, and the sort of the um, stories. Frequently, I feel like what I what I love about your stories is that people are living multiple horrors at once, right? Yeah. Like they might be living the <laughs> horror of being a survivor of violence, right? Or and suddenly now they're being hunted by some supernatural being trying to feed her lover. Uh, that is <laughs> slipping but not falling. Um, I am obsessed with that story, as you know. And and so I I there's this interesting sort of layers to what you're doing here where it's kind of like people are realizing they're in horror as the story's unfolding, but mm. it's like, it's not they realize they're in a horror story. They just realize how horrifying just being alive is. And then there are yeah. extra layers on top of that. And I, I'm i curious, like, I think you have something you're saying with that, or maybe that's just like one of your things you do. <laughs> like we talked about Herman Melville, right? Melville, thank you. Oh my God. Oh, he didn't know it was allegorical, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And I w- so I was like asking you this question about like, what are you telling us? And I was like, or is it like a Melville I didn't realize I was telling you anything thing. I don't oh, know. Well, I think I think that the <laughs> no problem. I think that the thing about writing stories is is that there's stuff that you know that you're writing about, there's stuff that you later realize that you were writing about and then there's stuff that other people take out of it that you will never be able to predict, right? So there's always going to be people being like, yeah, the white whale was allegorical. Like it was, (laughs) you weren't really talking about a white whale the whole time. And Herman Melville being like, oh my God, (laughs) like, are you serious? Wow, I thought this book was about a white whale because it is, right? But I think that there's something interesting about that. There's also something with, with me specifically where I love to watch horror movies, read horror novels, everything. And in those stories, in horror, and I guess in fiction in general, you'll always have these side characters, and you kind of never know what's going on with the side characters, right? Like, they're there to be support in some way. They're there to get killed at the beginning of the story. You know, there's always kind of these side characters that end up being sort of collateral damage. Something that I've thought about recently 
was um, in the cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1919, I believe. There is so much in that story that's about kind of the, you know, uh, the char- the main characters. And then there's this woman, Jane, who's kind of off to the side of the whole story and we never learn really anything about her. But she still is a very important character to the story. So I think that something about A Small Light and something about my general interest and the way that I interact with horror, I guess, is that I want to hear more about these characters that aren't necessarily the person who the horror is very directly happening to. And sometimes it is. But, you know, most of these characters are interacting with subject matter as kind of observers in a way where they're seeing all of this stuff happening and then by the time it's time for them to respond to it, it's almost too late, right? And I feel like that's something that I'm so interested in exploring in stories because those characters, uh, they're always the one where I'm like, but what happened to her? You know, or like something whenever I'm watching the movie and it makes sense that they can't, you know, every movie can't just go follow the side character (laughs) for like 45 minutes, but I can, right? Like that can be like what my stories are. So I kind of liked that a lot of the stuff that I write is kind of peripheral to horror, I guess. Like you didn't necessarily do something to cause it, but you didn't avoid it in the ways that were clear that you should have avoided it, I guess. Like, because you wouldn't know in the moment. So I noticed, and I wonder if this is in connection to that kind of side character thing, that like another theme that you tend to do is self-imposed isolation. Oh, yeah. Like there's a lack of communication or a lack of knowledge. So sometimes, you know, in horror movies, it's because, oh, if only this one person had just said that how they felt but like we Mm -hmm. don't usually get like the internal part of that story and what I find very interesting about most of your stories is your stories often admit directly that that is what is happening there you know right there's a lot of I couldn't have possibly or like I I didn't understand that this is what was happening or something like that like yeah reflectively But then there is a lot of self-imposed isolation. And I think that that's just because I'm a person that does that, honestly, like not necessarily to the incredible extremes of a lot of these characters. But, you know, there is definitely a self-reflective quality to it in a way where I do feel like there's times where, you know, processing something in the moment is really difficult and processing it, reaching that your personal information out to others is difficult. Like it becomes very hard and it can seem insurmountable. And then the things that have happened in the past really kind of dictate like what's happening in the present, right? So if like this was how you dealt with conflict at this time or this time, then you're still doing it. So I think it's definitely true, like what you say, that there is a lot of self-imposed isolation. Like these characters definitely are not talking to each other (laughs) in a constructive way for the most part. And then there's times where it's like you almost don't want to say something that you're thinking, right? And I think that that's the position that a lot of them are in too, like uh, inexplicit. Like she can't tell this family how upset she is with them, right? Because they wouldn't be able to hear it. And so there's kind of a side of that to it as well. Like whenever you're going through stuff, people aren't always going to be receptive to what you're trying to say. And then they can kind of like move on with their own narrative sometimes. And yeah, I don't know. It's It seems like a lot of these characters do that for sure. Yeah, I just relate to it, I guess. So do you want to uh, mention maybe a little bit of the process? I know you said you wrote these over the course of the past couple of years. Like, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the first one that I wrote was the, oh, uh, Red Lips in a Blue Light. And that was because Weird Punk actually was doing a anthology that was a uh, The New Flesh, a literary tribute to David Cronenberg. And uh, all of the short stories thereby are kind of set, not necessarily, you know, with characters from Cronenberg, but they're all taking inspiration from Cronenberg's mini films. And I had just, I mean, I'm obsessed with the movie, like The Brood, and I'm, I really love, you know, a lot of the Cronenberg stuff. It's all gooey, goopy horror that is also just kind of so like kind of gross and sleazy at the same time. Like the characters are all kind of upsetting, you know, um, I just love that stuff. So I wanted to submit to the company um, and they accepted it. So that was like the first one that I had published. And uh, from there, I was published in a good amount of other places. There's like a little page in the PDF or book that kind of tells where everything was published, if it was published. Some of these are new stories. But it was basically just a matter of, you know, Sam, I've been working on a novella for a long time, but it's a complicated one. So it's taking me a while. And Sam from Weird Punk reached out and was just like, well, you could do like a short story collection because I know you have this many short stories just kind of sitting around. And uh, that's how it came together. It took like a little while, but once we decided to do it, it was like, oh, we have like two weeks to do it. So like, let's do it super fast. And we came up with art for it. We had to discuss the art a lot and the cover and everything like that. But it was fun. We just kind of like, Sam is local. So we just kind of drank like a six pack of like, I think it was like Milwaukee's, no, Miller Lite maybe or something like Tall Boys. <laughs> We just both drank like three of them and like for like four hours just sat on the porch and just kind of like talked about the what we had in mind for it, which is not what the cover turned out to be at all. Like we had this kind of, it was like the vibes are still there, but the ideas that we had that we were trying to hash through, like they just weren't what we ended up going with because he kind of just had this piece by Don Noble just kind of sitting around and he's like, what about this? And it's like, oh, yeah, that looks exactly like this book. So let's go with that. <laughs> and it has big uh, vibes from the titular story, A Small Light, you know? Yeah, it was so weirdly perfect because we were like, I want it to have birds on the cover and I want it to have fish on the cover. And like, you're like trying really hard to meet this, meet in the middle because we both have like, he he has to respect the aesthetic of weird punk, right? Like they mm -hmm. do a ton of books on that website and they're all great, awesome books. So check them out. But it's like there's an aesthetic there. And yeah, I was like, exactly. I want to do like a watercolor cover. That, but then we ended up still having a watercolor cover. Like the back of the book is a watercolor piece by my friend Tana Thornock. So. Well, I was hoping you would actually talk a little bit more about the back cover. I know that was one of the pieces you were really excited about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was excited. Initially, I wanted uh, Tana to do the front cover. Uh, but it just kind of didn't quite work with the time mm -hmm. we had to like go really fast and stuff. So, but the back cover turned out to be amazing. Like it's just this kind of um, forest and, and, you know, with like the, there's a, you can tell the small light is like there, there's a very subtle like light over the top of the trees. And then it just kind of fades into the night sky, which is, Tana's an incredible She's just incredible at doing really subtle watercolors where if you're trying to communicate something, she's great at communicating it with very subtle touches. And that was just another time where Tana like fully knocked it out of the park pretty much. Absolutely. And we've had the 
pleasure of working with Tana on, with you, actually. You and Tana have worked on covers for Decoded Pride. You're working on some <laughs> materials for upcoming stuff that we'll talk yeah. about in a little bit. It's like Tana's, Tana's a tits, you know? I so tried awesome. to get her to change our team up name to say Tana because I'm Sarah <laughs> and she's Tana. And she was like, yeah, we could do that. Like all like not into it. And I'm like, Satana, that's us. <laughs> Uh, is that really just because you love Satana, the character? Yeah, <laughs> I do love that character. I would. It's like if somebody asked me to do 500 issues of Satana, the comic, I would be able to provide an immediate outline for major overarching stories for sure. Like I love that character so we much, and she never shows up. She's one of those characters that you can just fill in all of these blanks on, right? Because it's like she's she has a very basic like character set of personality traits, but I like her when she just pops up in random comics and you're like, what I love are you it. even doing here? And she's like, I'm Satana, what do you want? I'm here to make out with somebody and leave. <laughs> do something evil <laughs> off to the side. That's exactly my character. Was there one where she and Angela were flirting a lot and it was they like, made oh, out in Strike That's right, Force. they did make out. Read it, read it. Of course, bring Sarah back though. Like that's the thing, right? You're just like, oh, where's yeah. Angela already has a wife, just so you know. Like, it's cool if you want to, like, make out with other people, of course. But just like, but we do want to see her come back, okay? Like, Yeah, I'm dying for that. I'm like, give this to the right person and it's going to be amazing. I know. Here's hoping. I've I've noticed that uh, queer and trans fans in comics have been manifesting some really incredible shit lately. So I'm like, ooh, maybe we can manifest that. The return. Anyway. Speaking of people in relationships, I was going to say, speaking of of sexy, evil lesbians. (laughs) Okay, yeah, it's basically those are the themes, right? We got to the heart of this book. Since both me and Essie have such a love of particularly the first story in the anthology, uh, Slipping But Not Falling, wanted to talk a little bit about you and terrifying monster ladies yeah like because obviously they show up a lot here they show up a lot in your faves in general Uh uh-huh um and just a little bit about there tends to be a lot of either there's an even villain monster lady Mm -hmm. or the person is their own villain yeah (laughs) or both or both yeah or both and then that's lovely uh about kind of like when you make the decision to externalize what that what that character represents versus internalizing it yeah I love I love slipping not falling that's a story that I wrote based on the concept of this kind of beautiful woman who has a wide-brimmed hat and is just like lurking around this hotel you know Uh, I loved this as an idea. She's wearing sunglasses. She's like somebody who seems very mysterious. And you kind of see these weird things happening around her, right? Like whenever she first pops up in the story, there's her like flashing her headlights on this couple that's like arguing in front of the hotel and they immediately like disperse. It like ends the argument. And then she kind of like vanishes into the hotel. And then this person sees her again after she's had like a couple of drinks and um, is a little bit more susceptible to not paying attention to those parts of her. Right. And just being like, oh, we're it's cool. We're just chatting at the bar. It's like this cool lady or whatever. So I loved that story, too, because there's this 
as you were saying, self-imposed isolation, right? Like there's this character who is also fleeing, a, I would say, a very toxic relationship. And the way that she's going across the country, kind of just driving as long as she can before she gets a hotel room and she's worried about money. She's worried that her sense of resolve isn't strong enough to go through the things that she knows she's going to have to go through because obviously leaving somebody physically is the very first step in a very long process. You have to cut ties with somebody that you've been with for a really long time. And it's difficult. (laughs) It's difficult even if it's just a friendship or something. But if it's, uh, you know, like your domestic partner, then it becomes even worse. But I have many times in my own life gone on these kind of long road trips. And it's always scary, right? It's hard to do it without kind of noticing how weird everything is. Like you're going through these towns in the middle of America or something and everybody doesn't know you. But there it's very clear that people don't know you because they know everybody, you know, that they see. Like it's a town that has like 500 people in it or something. So you have these moments where you're kind of stopping in these unfamiliar places and you are vulnerable, just straight up. A lot of people go missing doing stuff like that, right? So I loved Jessica's story there because she is in this emotional place that I think I can relate to. Like when you're just trying to get to a different place, you know, these kind of in-between moments that I thought was really interesting. But the way that it ends up manifesting is there are these two like monster girlfriends kind of, right? And it To me was, I wanted to do a story about a monster that's just eating, right? Because we have a tendency, I think, in mythology and even to today is like if there's a monster that's attacking, it's because they're evil or they're like motivated by doing something horrible. But Sasha kind of eats personalities and the sea monster eats people, right? So there's kind of this counterbalance for them where it actually works really well, you know, (laughs) they're like actually a much more functional couple, right? Than almost, I think anybody in the rest of the book. (laughs) Um, But then it's kind of... I hadn't thought of them as like a a symbol of a really healthy relationship. (laughs) Isn't it so weird, right? But I wanted that. Like I was like, I I kind of like both of them. And I, that's why... Normally, I would steer away from this, like, there's like a little epilogue at the end of that story, right? Normally, I would steer away from doing something like that because I'm like, you don't need to drive the point of something home that hard, right? But then I was like, I kind of just want to show what it's like for her because I had this idea of having this very, like, specifically feminine monster who is also just eating. And it's not like she's providing for her children or something like that. She's just eating. And I loved that. Like, I loved all of those ideas. And as far as, like, what it represents, I guess I almost don't know, right? Because there's so many different things that are going on in that story where you're just kind of like nobody is a villain, sort of. Well, and I'm I'm glad you said what you did about the the sort of, as you were calling it, like, epilogue. Because that's something I've noted in a lot of your work is that you are so good at delivering that final line that just makes you like want to throw the book across the room or like (laughs) when you're writing an essay, it makes me want to like slam my computer on the table because I'm like, why am I not this brilliant? Just kidding. (laughs) It's usually just because like so many feelings um, is actually what I'm I'm doing. But in this story, I felt like the epilogue really makes the story in many ways. That's when we start to see Sasha as this sort of 
you know, benevolent provider. Like she's she's a she's a bad guy, but she's a bad guy because the lens we are looking from is that of prey. You know, yeah. like and then but, you see it from hers for two seconds, and it's like, oh no, she seems really nice. <laughs> yeah, like she really loves all these personalities, right? Like she's like petting them or whatever. She's like, yeah. I got my little models, and I was like, you know, she really loves her little human suits. <laughs> I know. It's kind of heartwarming, right? It is in a really messed up, messed up way. (laughs) Um, You know, we talked a little bit about the publication history of the book. You know, another piece that I was wondering, and we're going to get back, we'll keep weaving in and out of specific stories and themes, is I wanted to know a little bit about how you put the order together, because that really, it really worked for me. And I, when I saw the stories that were in it, I was like, oh, interesting order. But then when I read it in that order, I was like, fuck, it couldn't be in any other order. So tell me about how you put that together and what, if anything, what you were trying to communicate. Yeah, totally. I think that that was a moment where they were not in that order whenever I first, because I was just trying to drag together every short story that I had sitting around because I was like, uh, what have I ever written? Like, where is it at? And, you know, you're going on, cert- well, okay, if you're me, you're going, that means going on searches through different external hard drives, your desktop, your laptop. Like, oh, too relatable. Drive. Where is it at? <laughs> you know, I wrote this, but where is it at? Who knows? Is backed up. I know it is, but where's it backed up? So, <laughs> yeah, I definitely had to go on kind of a Easter egg hunt, I guess, and, you know, grab as many as I could, throw it into a doc. I still forgot like three stories, but threw it into a doc, sent it off. And then uh, it was basically just staring at it long enough. And honestly, even just the way that the titles flow, it was kind of important. I didn't want a small light to be either the beginning or the ending, of course. Like I just kind of wanted it to be like a few stories in. I also was thinking about length, you know, how the you know, slipping, not falling is a little bit of like a longer story than it follow it up, I believe, with like the plague story. Um, which was very short, right? So it was basically just stuff like that, little considerations. But for the most part, it was just staring at it for like, I don't know, 45 minutes and being like, okay, how should this go? And then later wanting to change it as I do love to kind of fuck with the things that I have like finished, right? Like you kind of want to mess with it and you're just like, I can't, that's actually perfect. Like I can't do anything to that now. That just sounds (laughs) like like how you, how you, you know, treated the characters, it's fine. (laughs) <laughs> things ended now one more one more fuckery for you <laughs> we're gonna close on one fuckery um yeah exactly in particular uh with the order uh was there any particular thought in and the answer might be no i don't know these things or explicit <laughs> being later on i found it really interesting because one the the visuals of of that story uh being incredibly haunting uh, but also just how how internal that whole story is. <laughs> yeah, I had I was like, okay, you, you cannot possibly lead with explicit, right? Like, but it was also kind of just so the way that I have to position this story is once they've already forgiven me for all of this other stuff, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> if they can get through the bird goddess, and if they can get through, you know, like the kind of uh, like toxic nature of that relationship, then that means that they might be ready for explicit, which I think is just a, I, oh man, loved that story, but it was hard to write. Like it is one of those stories where you're just like, you know, I can only imagine it being like at least somewhat hard to read because of how um, graphic and how kind of like mean and grimy it is. There's like all of this 
like very clear about how toxic this person's life is, I guess, and um, how much she can't see a way out of it, I guess, was really important to me. Like, I loved that character. I loved kind of the class commentary of that story where, and there's there's class commentary like all over my stories. It's pretty much everything I write, I guess, because I'm just a really poor person. And so it makes it kind of easy to think about that kind of stuff. And Financially, Sarah's a wonderful person. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Good point. I'm a bad person. Is what I'm a bad Sarah's financial like, I'm person. I'm a real piece of shit. Yeah. You know? And we're like, yeah, you are. Very... You are. No, you're wonderful. I Thank just you. particularly but... love, love that story because it just has such vibes of the woman that you see in Blade Runner. Oh, yeah, right. And But like, what if she wasn't an AI? You know, like, and it's just like what thoughts might have been going through her head and also the most terrifying scene in a bad movie that I've ever seen is an alien versus predator two with the hospital room and the labor. And it reminded Ooh. me of that. So oh. also, I don't know if you've ever seen it, Sarah, but uh, there, there, there's involved a, a human person going into labor, but then also the, the, the hybrid alien predator babies. And it's a horrific hospital. Room they walk in on. Uh, the movie is trash. I love it. Uh, yeah i yeah, i mean it sounds like up my alley quite frankly uh when my wife uh went in college away to japan uh for five months my way of doing something that was like you have to prove your love to me was that i made her take me to see that uh <laughs> aside from it being a terrible movie and we bo both knew it was going to be bad she also doesn't do horror so it was like truly me going <laughs> like prove your love but that scene was so gross and you did like an intimate version of that scene like something that is just so just like the pink gooeyness like the just everything I I love it anyway that's it yeah I'm really inspired by a lot of I mean you know I referenced my first published work being in a book that's a literary tribute to David Cronenberg is certainly not an accident right yeah. I think that it was something that really spoke to me where I just wanted to explore these kind of like oh man there's something about it right like you it's like I don't agree with the points that Cronenberg is often making in his films, right? Like I, in The Brood, it's like, she's evil, kind of, you know? It's like, it's such a, he's mad at his ex-wife kind of feel to it, you know? But I, so I don't always be like down with the vibe of it, but there's just something where you look at these monsters, like the the woman who turns into a monster in The Brood, and there's like this scene that just haunts everybody where you you see her in her full monstrous glory, right? And to me, it's like she's so beautiful and so scary, right? That's something that I love about these kind of monsters. It's just like such an interesting thing with Cronenberg, right? Because I don't know what's going through his head, right? So I kind of always am fighting with myself while I'm watching these movies a little bit and being like, I love, hate this so much. <laughs> and that's kind of how, the things that inspire horror in me sometimes are just how grisly like bodies are, you know, it's like, I am so haunted by stuff like roadkill or something like that. Like it really can change my mood to see something like that. So I always think about that because you can't argue with it. Like I'm adding like existential thought exercises on top of everything, but you can't argue with like, like something that's been like hit by a car or something like that. Right. Like there's just this finality to it that really helps drive the horror of everything home in a lot of these stories. I think. Now, to be fair, you don't shy away from monster X's. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, the, there's monster exes for sure. But I think there's also an element of whether or not there's this thread that I find really interesting is once they become actual monsters, they become almost more acceptable right. to their partner where they were truly horrendous before. And it's not like they become soft cut. Like they're still like monsters that will consume you. And like, yeah. but somehow like there's this thread of, well, like now I can accept it. Well, yes, Danny. I was just because you all were like explicit, so tough. I was like, wait, I don't remember explicit being that tough. So I was like rereading it, like sort of speed reading back through it, and I was like, oh right, this is what it's like to be in an abusive relationship. <laughs> like, that's maybe something familiar to me, and perhaps why I didn't think of it as so like I don't know. It didn't didn't stand out. And I think that 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 is something that uh, craft wise Sarah does a lot. Hell yeah, which I found really interesting. The playing with reality in terms of whether or not a relationship was abusive, but also who was the abuser. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, like, I notice as, like, a common theme that, like, the separation, like, that happens in relationships is often a precursor to the realization that, say, the protagonist was abusive or neglectful when they've been so sure that they weren't. Right. Um, which I always find interesting. Right, right, right. And that, and like codependency in it, like the way that you, Sarah, you're just so good at like teasing out that like, okay, who's more fucked up? Oh, <laughs> and like, it's like, yeah, because that's everyone. It. Like when, <laughs> when you're in a bad relationship, I think you really do question yourself, right? Or I do. I mean, I don't know. Like, and I've never, I mean, I don't ever want to compare my relationships with the relationships in this book, which are very, very monstrous and lots of other stuff going on. Many reasons that that's not what they are. But it's kind of these glimmers that you get, like when you're in something that very clearly isn't going to work out and you start to be like, why was I attracted to this person, right? Mm -hmm. Like it seems like it's almost like there's these, these ways that we can feed this like bad part of each other, right? And it's not necessarily that there is even active abuse. Like, I don't think, for instance, in The Hollow Bones, that was not two characters being abusive physically in any way. Mm. Like, they were not abusive to each other that way. But it's complicated, right? Like, you want to mm -hmm. think about... That is the one I for, for me that manifests that the most because mm. you read this character who is being kind of awful to her girlfriend the whole time. And just to be clear, like the character that I relate to the most is Sin. Sin is the character who is with this person who kind of treats her badly. But the whole time she's going through like poverty, fear of where she's going to live if they break up, like just a lot of things that keep them in this relationship together. She has these moments where she like can't face reality. She's kind of agoraphobic in a way. But then I also think that the main character that you're hearing the story from has a lot of issues where she's shutting down, like she doesn't talk to her. She ignores mm -hmm. her on purpose. She like withholds affection. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like neither of those characters mean to hurt each other. Like they both mm -hmm. really love each other. And I think it's very clear that they love each other through the entire story. But it, like they can't get over each other. Like by the end of the story, you realize that even like years, decades into the future, they can't get over each other. Mm -hmm. But you just still know that it can't work, right? Mm -hmm. And that it's bad. <laughs> like it's not a good relationship. So I always think about stuff like that because to me, in explicit, it seems a little bit more clear that her ex-wife was physically abusive. But mm -hmm. in this one, it was 
more that they just have this very toxic partnership where, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not a clear cut line through the middle where we know who to be friends with, right? And that's Mm -hmm. why I thought it was so important to choose the point of view character so specifically in that story was to show how whenever somebody is going through a hard time and you're just like treating them like they're a burden, it can be so damaging. And they might, I don't know, become a bird deity. <laughs> of course, <laughs> like maybe. As as happens uh, yeah. sometimes. You know, Danny, I want to go back to what you were saying, though, because I, I think that we haven't fully explored the idea of like accepting the partner more as monster oh, than yeah. as not. And I really loved that 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 insight, Danny. I hadn't thought about that. And so that's why I started like my brain was going ding, 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 ding. So I took us in a tangent. But I, I would love to hear, you know, I don't know if you had more you were saying, Danny. I think I might have interrupted you. And then Sarah, obviously, I want to hear. It's interesting more. to me in part because I'm, it's not like, like the cis-hetero version of the story theme, right? Is that, oh, the inside matches the outside, so it's okay. But it's, it's not quite that. I right. think if anything, it's almost this, resigned painful acceptance of that having been the part that uh was attractive in the first place like i think about the confusion uh uh the where she thinks that uh she's sleeping with helena but it's the ghost of heather you know like because she's convincing herself that right (laughs) right but it's it's not simply being part of a painful like abusive cycle it's a being drawn into it right it's the being attracted to the things that she doesn't want to be attracted to, right? And I think... Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm sorry to interrupt. In Explicit, I think it was very much, too, that, yeah, she can't really imagine a life out of it, and there is something attractive to her to, like, just kind of handing the reins over to somebody else. Like, this is a character that definitely struggles a lot with self-loathing, I think. And the way that it manifests is, is that she's pretty susceptible to some of the things where if, you know, I don't know, I feel like in a lot of situations, people are just like, well, clearly that relationship wouldn't work out. Like, why did you be attracted to that person? The, in this, it's like in part because of it, right? Like you see this side of them that you're reading wrong, kind of. And like the way that people kind of change and evolve, there's a reason why they're more accepting of the monster because once the person becomes who they are, like if somebody grows beyond you and becomes something kind of without you, then you kind of can't negotiate with it anymore. Like they have kind of become this different thing than like what you initially thought. But just because you didn't think it doesn't mean it wasn't there, right? So I think showing that kind of gradual, not necessarily like they're becoming monsters, but they're becoming who they are. And that's when you don't have a say anymore, right? Right. And especially since it also always ties into a lack of surprise. I think like you play a lot with the I should have seen the signs like concept, especially in those monster stories, right? Where the character does acknowledge that it was always there. It was always something that they just decided not to notice. Yeah. And like it becomes more clear as time goes on, right? right. Which is kind of how it is with people, you know? It's like, did we just slip into one of my therapy sessions? Because I just <laughs> kind of feel like maybe Sarah has been reading me in every story in this book and I just didn't get it until Danny just said this. <laughs> I hope I'm reading a lot of people in this book, honestly, <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, in like a, in a gentle way. I'm yeah, trying to read myself, read. you know, like <laughs> I've, I've definitely been in friendships that went 
wrong. I've been in relationships that went wrong. There's people who I don't talk to anymore, you know, like that kind of thing. Like, it's just kind of, there's certain points where you do kind of have to like go your separate ways and or just resign, I guess, is like what happens in explicit. But, you know, sometimes people just change in this way that I honestly do think is really scary because, you know, time is going to change all of us. So you have to kind of have this eye to the future and be like, am I going to become what's Maestro Hulk or whatever? Like, am I going to become the evil Hulk of the future who kills all the superheroes? You know, like you kind of have to at least have an eye on like what your, I guess, spiritual progression through life is going to be because otherwise, you know, it might come as a surprise to you. Now I'm like, okay, what sort of spiritual practice do I need to start engaging in so I do not become the future Hulk who kills all the superheroes? It's called just having an existential crisis that never ends <laughs> if you're me. You know, if that's all it takes, I think I'm on the right path. <laughs> yeah, I think you're like at least tapping into that energy somewhat. <laughs> you know, I, it's amazing because as much as there are so many central tenets, I think, that and, and Danny, I'm so glad you're here. You've been pulling out all these beautiful threads. Metaphors you come back to, which I have another one I want to ask about, but for some reason my brain doesn't want to do that yet. You know, there's so much going on. And then each story is so unique. They're each set in these incredibly lush, but I don't mean lush in sort of the plant way. I mean lush in sort of the like filled in way, like lush worlds that are like, oh my God, of course Sasha would exist in this world. Like how Mm, would mm -hmm. Sasha not exist in the world of slipping but not falling? And I think it's because I maybe heard it before I read it. The one that haunts me uh, is also the titular story, A Small Light. And I've I've tried to sort of explain it to friends before. And I think that you may have explained it to me this way, but it's like camping is the the real horror. And <laughs> that is so funny to me, but also so it's it's rendered so beautifully in this, where this like nature as danger while also being beautiful, which is, you know, true, right? But I just I want to hear a little bit more about A Small Light, where it came from. And yeah, like, am I wrong? Is the main horror not camping? <laughs> I want to hear it all. I just want to say my theory first, because then Zara can uh-huh. be like, you're both wrong. <laughs> uh, is that what I loved is that camping still served both as the thing that the protagonist had never wanted to share, but also the thing that because of that first love that her partner never shared with her. Mm-hmm. up until yeah. that point and like very often the distance in a lot of Sarah's other stories is either uh, shown as a psychological thing or as a supernatural thing but the distance was actually like a, a real thing metaphor like just this entire like going camping uh that is such this distance between them mm-hmm yeah, even from the start, right? It's presented in this kind of comical way where it's like, I don't really like camping. And, you know, I don't know much about it. I have a different vibe. We did this other stuff when I chose the vacation, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm doing this, but I'm not saying that I'm not that into it, right? Like those kind of things where you try to just kind of be like, you know what? I'm going to be open-minded about this. I'm going to try it. <laughs> and then it turns out, you know, that there is something that your girlfriend just never talks to you or your wife never talks to you about, like never. And that's a huge part of the story is that we do kind of keep these secrets from each other, not necessarily intentionally, but there is this part of it being both camping is the villain, the ex that she isn't necessarily not over because the ex is gone, like the ex is not in the story, 
but is haunted by. And so thereby like lives in her memories with this person sometimes, right? And like that's a part that you can't touch. You have no control over that. Like you don't understand it. They don't communicate it with you when it happens because it they are afraid of what the results would be. You know, like that kind of thing. I think that there's something just intrinsically terrifying about the woods <laughs> because they're scary. There's monsters in there. But something scary about that Something scary, too, about having these parts of someone that you're involved with that you don't know and are afraid to ask. And then it comes back as, like, a monster. <laughs> and then there's always there's at least more so in that story than I think some other stories. There's the vibe of, would this have happened had they gone camping sooner? Which is kind of right. like, like, I feel like when I'm like, the metaphor is such, like, an actual real world thing as opposed to, like, the supernatural element. Mm -hmm. um where you're like if they had gone camping aka the grief had been shared earlier would this have happened right Right. but learning that this grief had been held on to and this horror had existed for so long means it's too late now right yeah like maybe it would have been less horrific had they uh talked earlier you (laughs) know yeah and that story too i had watched the movie what keeps you alive which i love mm. i love that movie it's very scary it's about a murder wife <laughs> like the they go to celebrate their one year anniversary and one of them turns on the other and you find out that she's had all of these other wives and killed them all and you know it's very over the top but honestly i think a wonderful movie well paced terrifying And that's the thing for me is like, it's so unsettling that the person that you love the most would be like a monster and you just never even noticed it. And um, like, this is, that's not this story, but that's what that story is. And it just haunted me. I was so obsessed with it and I couldn't get over it. And I kept like being like, I can't believe she pushed her off the mountain, you know, just like (laughs) absolutely horrified by it because that is the fear, right? Is that I feel like I occasionally, have like definitely a fear of commitment and the fear is is that you will absolutely miss every red flag because partners whether you can commit to the wrong person you mm. commit to the wrong person and that happens in life all yeah, plenty of, of the people time. do right yeah partners kill their spouse all of the time like it's not you know people will stay in relationships and then it turns out that they were working for the CIA for like <laughs> their entire you know 30 years that they spent together or something like stuff like that is mortifying, but it's kind of something that that film addresses. There's a scene where they ask why they got married and she's just like, you know, you'll never really know what's going on inside of somebody else's head, but you take the risk because Mm. that's what love and life is. And of course, it's like in the context of like her wife is going to murder her. (laughs) She Mm. like knows it and is kind of trying to pretend that that's not about to happen. But I wanted to do a story because this story haunted me so much and I was just like scandalized by it. And I was like, (laughs) I want to do a story where it's like it has a happy ending and the wives just love each other so much. (laughs) I love that this is your happy ending. (laughs) No, that's it. I was like, I got halfway through it. The wives love each other so much. This does not have a happy ending. And I tried. Like I fought with this story so much being like, I just want them to be in love and end this and resolve it. And there was no way to resolve it. Like you couldn't resolve it without it being this like wonderfully ambiguous moment of like, is is she going to turn on you? Like, mm-hmm. is it going to be this or is it going to be that? Mm-hmm. And who would she I just, choose? Like, yeah. 
you don't know in the story and I don't know what she chooses. Like if I, if I want to add my ending to it, the one that I think would be good, it's like, of course they're like, get out of here, witch. Like, get away from us, you witch. We're in love. We're in love. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then it's just like, but you know, and if I wanted to give it like a standard horror ending, it would be like the conclusion of like murder, death, you know, all of that. But with this one, it was like, I can't simplify it like that because here's the thing. We have these open-ended questions with everybody, right? Like, you never know, really, in a way. You can feel and believe things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you physically can put yourself in someone else's shoes. So as much empathy as you can feel is still limited by your own perception. And I think that that's what's terrifying about it, right? Is like, no matter how in tune you are with things, you don't know. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, earlier today I made myself a sandwich and I thought to myself, if I could rate and review this sandwich, I would give it five stars. And <laughs> I would say... This sandwich is so incredible. It was the best sandwich I've had literally in days. And it was everything I wanted it to be. And that would be a positive review. That would help me see what audience responses were to my sandwich. And, you know, it would just be really a helpful system. I wonder if there's another situation where rating and reviewing would come in handy. Oh, huh. Oh, my God. No. What? You could rate and review this podcast and then that helps us find our audience and it helps us find whatever we've lost it helps us find what we've lost <laughs> helps us find our socks <laughs> our keys our cell phone people don't talk about it enough when you rate and review it really changes someone's life <laughs> yeah it's gonna change my life that's for sure and we like to read the reviews you know the ones that are positive that say soothing and nice things <laughs> Five stars. We'll give you five stars as a listener. You give us five stars as a podcast. Five sandwiches. <laughs> this podcast, let's face it, is five delicious sandwiches. Well, you know, another piece that, as, as the two of you have been talking about a small light that I hadn't realized, or at least I hadn't made conscious, I don't think, is... Part of and tell me if I'm like if it's not that deep or if I'm way in left field and then we can just <laughs> cut this part of the interview. Uh, but is it feels like it's also about the way that the the wife has like internalized homophobia and like even though she is still like she's married right to a woman and she's living ostensibly as this you know queer empowered woman. There's this this shame story in the backdrop that yes is absolutely supernatural. 
<laughs> but in many ways, to me, the most potent thread of that is like the fear of sharing that this was her girlfriend, the fear of what that meant and what that made her. And I, you know, I think we all love playing. I mean, <laughs> Danny loves werewolves, as we know. We all love mm -hmm. playing with that, like, what is evil? What is queerness? What is transness? Like, how do these things get treated as evil? Are they evil? What's more evil than like a witch in the woods, right? Perhaps homophobia. Uh, and and I don't know. I just I was starting to feel those pieces come together. So now, Sarah, you tell me, no, you're wrong, Essie. We have to cut that, you weirdo. You know, whatever. Like, I just want to hear what you think of that. I think that there is reflections of that definitely in Hollow Bones. I think that there is actually a scene where she pulls away from her girlfriend in public and like doesn't want to engage in any kind of PDA. And uh, there's an association, I think, with her and this other character both being part of these rich kind of like upper crust families that also are probably very patriarchal, right? So there's this thing where the way that homophobia manifests, I think, for like lesbians that come from these like really nice families or queer people, I guess, in general, but I'm going to say predominantly lesbians in this respect is that they are attractive to men. So why aren't they just attracted to, you know, cis men is like the way that the kind of viewing framework works, I think. And so they have a lot to lose. Like I, whenever I came out, had literally nothing to lose because my parents were already assholes. <laughs> so it was kind of just like, yeah, they can be like meaner about it, but I still had a hard time because it's like even in your immediate context, obviously coming out is hard for everybody in some respect, I would think. But it's this way of how they have so much to lose. They have their money, they have their support system and everything. And I think it is genuinely really hard to walk away from that stuff. Like that's, I don't judge people, you know, for being in like the closet or something because, you know, it's hard. It's really hard. And there's different degrees of safety. But then there's also different degrees of like, if I come out or if I'm, if I treat my partner on the same level as you would expect me to treat my husband, right? Like, then you would have this kind of different reaction where people, they're waiting for something else to happen. Like, they're like, oh, this is like the phase that they're going through or like whatever. So I just think I wanted to drive home that these are characters that repress themselves because they have a lot to lose. Like there's just plenty of things that could go wrong in their lives that it's like that is still something in the relationship that maybe they're not expressing openly because it probably makes them feel bad. Like, you know, being embarrassed of your partner probably makes you feel like shit. <laughs> and so, you know, but it's not necessarily from you, but it is, right? It's mm -hmm. just kind of an interesting dynamic, I think. And that's how I felt about the person, too, in um, A Small Light, because I think that she has a lot to lose. It seems like her family is a lot more accepting, mm -hmm. but it also seems kind of like she would be a little bit emotionally withdrawn because she probably spent a long time in the closet. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, I just love that, you know, I ask you a question about one thing and you're like, and bring it back to the class analysis, which I fucking love because that's what makes yeah. your story so rich. Huh. Ironically. Yeah. <laughs> Don't fire me, please. Please let me be on the podcast. You're fired. Get <laughs> oh, I want to be here. Um, I okay. I have, I have two more questions about the anthology. Um, one is about the metaphor of water. So 
you know, I think it's pretty common in a lot of science fiction, fantasy, and horror to use water to symbolize liminality, portals. And I do see that absolutely in this work. But also you use it, and again, this I think happens to various degrees in other people's work, but fuck other people. We're talking about you. <laughs> so, you know, it also is used to show the distortion of reality. And and there's also a lot of danger in water, right? Like a lot of our baddies are like lurking in some kind of water, even in a small light, right? They're in the raft and they're like, we're safe. And the witch is like, LOL, you know, like I'm just going to come get you. And that is like so interesting. So why are you so fascinated with water? Did I read your metaphor right? Have you ever thought about your fascination with water before? Well, okay. First, I want to say that sharks are not bad guys, right? Sharks are good guys. And humanity does bad things to sharks. So the fact that we have so many horror movies that have sharks as the villain, I don't necessarily always agree with because I'm like, yes. But here's the thing. They're terrifying, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're these like evolution machines. And the thing that's scary just kind of inherently in a like a, in a literal sense is that water is overwhelming. We cannot survive in it on our own. We cannot live in water. And that's scary. It's the same way that space is scary, except for space is like even more limitless. However, in our lives, like we know for sure that there we haven't charted vast majority of the ocean. Like we have no apparent interest in that, I guess, as like a species. And that's terrifying just in and of itself. But I also think that there's something with water. The very first nightmare I ever had whenever I was a little girl was that there were these planks of wood that were all stacked over a pool. And the pool was full of sharks. And the sharks kept like, there were too many sharks in the pool, right? So they were like, kind of like knocking each other over and biting at each other. And like, I had to like walk on this like shaky piece of wood, like across this thing. And like, there's no way you're going to make it. You know, you're going to die even at the beginning of the dream. Of course, I wake up before I die. But it's just like this blip on a radar, right? So there's something so precarious about that. Obviously, that's like a little kid metaphor for like bigger dangers or whatever. But it's the first memory of having a nightmare that I have. And it always has stuck with me. So even now, I think about stuff like that. Because once again, it's like, yeah, there's a bunch of sharks in this pool. and They're going to definitely eat you if you fall into the pool. But also, why did somebody cram all of these sharks into a pool, right? Like, why are you doing that? Like, that's a, something that clearly humans would have had to have done. Like, the sharks didn't put themselves in this pool. So, like, why, why did they do that? So there's still this kind of like a hand of human complicity and, you know, humanity kind of always having to mess with stuff, right? Like you don't have to mess with the sharks. You didn't have to cram all the sharks into a tiny pool and like ask me to walk over it. None of this, it's like a scenario that shouldn't even exist, but it's also like metaphorical in a lot of ways. Brilliant. I love it. That's why I think water is just in general. It's like this big, long metaphor that also, if you go into it, you die. <laughs> like, you <can> swim <laughs> Which for a we while. see a couple times. <laughs> you can't live in it, you know? Like, that's the thing. Like, think yeah. about, it's like every scenario of you spending more than like 30 or 40 minutes in water starts to become a nightmare, right? Like, mm. what if you're swimming laps and you can't stop, you have to keep going for hours and hours, you know, but after your body starts to give way, you know that the water will overtake you. 
Or like if you try to go for a swim in the ocean, there's so many things that can just like kill you. We've all seen the video of like the little kid on the boogie board and the giant shark like shadow moving underneath it. It might be photoshopped. We don't know. But we've all seen this stuff, right? So it's just kind of like as much as I think that humans are a villain to the ocean, the ocean is also something that's just kind of like, hey, don't fuck with me. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Don't come in here. Well, and you know, not that this is the shark podcast, though maybe it should be. You know, (laughs) one of the things we don't talk about a lot is sharks on comics. Sharks on comics. You know what? We're going to have to cut the interview now. I've got some rebranding work to do. Um, Yeah, you know, it's like sharks bite people because we've destroyed their natural food system. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. And they bite bite people so rarely. You know what I mean? I know. That's the other funny thing. We kill like millions of them every year, you know? Yes, yes. So it's uh, that idea of like the human hand being kind of creating the problem, but being unseen. That's really fucking interesting. That's something I think that will always appear in my work because there's, it's like almost the times that I live in, right? Like you, we live in a world where we had paradise on this earth and like, we're literally now wondering if we're going to be able to keep being alive on it because Mm -hmm. of us explicitly, like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) like no, no question who's causing that, you know, like it's just us. And there's a complexity to it. Like, obviously, if anybody in this call could be like, you know what? I actually don't like climate change and I'm going to end it. You know, like we would obviously do that. But there's like a whole societal web of complicity in it that makes it be so difficult to deal with. And I think at this point in our history, I have my hopes for our future, of course. But at this point in our history, it feels like all of the individualism that we have practiced is so coming back on us. And a lot of people's tendency is to double down on individualism. And then I think that there is a lot of people too that are just having to, you know, some always, but some for the very first time are having to accept the complexity of all of the systems that are in place and how it's gotten to a place where it is very difficult for an individual to like single-handedly change something. But every solution to every problem is put on the heads of individuals. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's just kind of a fascinating thing. Um, All of these stories are about individuals, definitely. There's, as you were saying, self-imposed isolation. These are people that live very in their own heads. But it's like there is still the horror of society all around them, even if they're alone in a room, you know, like who built the room, like all of this. There's always kind of this larger context, I guess. I find it really interesting in particular because I feel as if the relationships in your stories mirror so much the exact way that you talk about humanity and climate change. Right. Yeah, I think so. Like they're like the way in which like the individualism uh, and things like that have affected things so much, mm-hmm. you know, but also yeah. the ways that uh, what do you do when it's too late to change that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of that's the way forward, right, is for all of us to I, and I am so far from the only person who's ever said this. So this is not a unique thought in any way, shape or form, but Kind of the way to the future, I think, is maybe trying to focus on self-sustaining communities. And I also think that that is, for right now, the world that we live in is the most actively discouraged thing that you could possibly do. 
And it's also something that is so fraught. Like it's so hard because you are a person and you are engaging with other people that have their own very complicated set of issues and their own set of concerns. And we can't always communicate with each other as gently as we should. And like all of those kind of things, it becomes very difficult. You never know like how things are being taken. You never know, you know, and then you can kind of suss your way out of that in most situations. There's times when you just flat out disagree with other people that you love. And so there are a lot of complexities to it. Like, it's just, it's how I feel like almost everything manifests in life is, is that there is the situation and then there's however many people or, you know, whatever are involved. And then there's this larger system around it. It's kind of, you can't address any problem without looking at all of the other problems. And there's no way to see all of the other problems because we live on this planet that has so many other living organisms on it, right? But you can try. And that's kind of the basis of trying to go forward in communities. And you have this way of these stories, I think. It's people really having to grapple with that, like, and some and failing, honestly, because I think that we do fail doing that kind of thing, like, all of the time. Like, you know, you, you'll have these organizations that are, you know, grassroots leftist organizations that ultimately crumble because of people issues. And uh, there, I don't know what the way out of that is, you know, like, we kind of just have to keep trying. So this is not directly connected, but it's uh, it's bitches on comics. The listeners are used to this. I was thinking about your deep love of animals, your deep connection to animals, your many, many animals. <laughs> I was thinking about being how you're a vegan and the importance of that in your life, how those things show up in these stories. And it made me come back to, and I think this will be a good sort of like center point around which to have the conversation. But I remember when you wrote the first draft of The Hollow Bones and you were talking to me about it. Um, you you had just done a new draft and you were like, oh, originally I had like all the birds were dying. And then you were like, but then I was like, what do the birds do? Like, why do the birds deserve to die? Like, that's ridiculous. Yeah. It's the people who have done bad things. And so you reworked it. And not only did it change the events of the story, but it changes the philosophy of the story, in my opinion. It where like nature is not something to be harnessed, but rather something to be part of. Forgive me mm -hmm. if I'm too hippie, but. This is my no, whole life. No, it's true though, right? <laughs> yeah, I am uh, a nature baby. And so part of what I've been thinking about is that there, there's something really powerful in seeing animals not as antagonistic, I think. And so I guess I'd love to know a little bit more about how you knew you needed to make that change and, and just, I guess I'm asking you to like have the conversation we had privately on the podcast. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. No, it's fine. I I think it's an interesting thing to talk about. I think it's an important thing to talk about because I do think that there's a tendency to overuse violence and horror. I understand why. Obviously, I love violent horror films. There's so many violent horror films. Like Hellraiser is like so goopy and gory and gross and has all of this like flesh coming apart at the seams. That is Hellraiser's vibe. I love it. I don't necessarily need every story to be Hellraiser, right? So whenever I was telling about the hollow bones, what happens in that scene? She's discovering Mark and Susan's bodies, right? Like, I mean, Susan's still alive, but read the story, right? But she's discovering their bodies, essentially. So what does the deaths of the bird add to that? There's birds in the house. What does the deaths add? What does it change? Isn't it actually more interesting if the birds are all untouched? And if we know that the birds aren't the ones who did the thing, like the people died of their own volition, 
it's just such a more interesting scene. And then, of course, Sin, what does she do? Freeze the birds. But what are the birds doing? Hanging out in the house because that's where they live. They don't have a greater context outside of that. And they kind of flutter outside a little bit. But to me, that's such a more haunting image. Like these people were kind of caging these birds. And to be clear, I think that birds as pets is fine. I think that these people were not fine about it. Like they were treating birds as if they were goods. And these are living creatures. And I think that that is truly part of the mission of that story entirely is just that you're going, these birds don't deserve this. Like you could have a bird that you loved, you know, like you can have more than one bird that you love, but they don't love these birds. And that lack of love for their pets is reflected in their lack of love for everything. And I think that there's something very you know, compelling, I guess, about the way that we view animals and stories, you know, something like Cujo or something. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's also like a dog that was probably abused, right? There's a greater story to that. And I understand what's so terrifying about murder dog, right? <laughs> like that's terrifying. And people do train dogs to be killers. Like it's scary stuff. But it's also like, you have to understand that once again, there's a massive human complicity in having pets, right? Like pets, are often like genetically engineered by people like the breed they breed them to be what they want them to be right and uh so therefore they no longer they in in the same way that we are they're not a part of nature but they are right they still have like their instincts and everything just like we do it's all very interesting but i think that people in general are extremely dismissive to animals they don't treat animals well always and I've seen a lot of abuse cases. Like if you are affiliated in any way, shape or form with animal justice, I guess, like you just are aware that there's a lot of abuse that it's done on people. Like it's done on creatures that don't have a voice. Like they can't talk about it, you know, they can't write a story. So I guess kind of having this reflection in my stories of these birds who, first of all, they should be alive. Like they, they die their own ways. Like there are birds that die in this story, but it's not through human violence. It's more of a story of them growing power, right? Because right now we're afraid if birds are even going to exist on this planet, like going forward, right? Like there's people who are worried that birds are going to go extinct. And can you imagine how horrible that world is, right? Like birds are annoying and, you know, squawky, but they're also so beautiful and so important to everything. Like our understanding of the planet, evolution created them. It's just like, or I mean, you know, whatever version of evolution you believe in. But I think that it's just, there's something beautiful about the way that birds are, but we don't really respect them in our lives. Like, I mean, probably we do, right? But humanity overall doesn't always show birds the respect that they deserve. So I think that that's kind of the reflection of it in that story specifically. But I always want to be advocating for animals because especially in horror, I mean, I have rabbits, like rabbits are treated so badly in fiction. Like they're, it's like, if you want to communicate something, show like a skinned rabbit and people will be like, that's horrifying. It adds the tension, but you never hear about this rabbit. You don't view the rabbit as a creature that had a personality. It's just very heavy handed to me as someone who like loves rabbits and like, you know, has gotten to be really good friends with a lot of rabbits. It's like, there's a personality to them that is neglected in that story. And while we don't delve into the mindset of the birds in any way, shape or form, I loved that the story forces you to respect them. 
See, I knew you'd have some fucking brilliance to drop on us like it was just a normal thing you were saying in your normal <laughs> day. Because that's what it's like talking to you. Um, mm-hmm. Danny, I only have a question about the little things that come and go. Did you have any other questions about the other stories? Aside from my own not brilliance, at simultaneously talking earlier uh, about two stories at the same time, when I was both talking about... Um, red lips and blue lights and explicit earlier and i want to apologize for that i was like i know both stories but for some reason i started oh, talking no, about one. that makes that makes so much sense okay cool yeah. yeah i was like i was like oh what scene i was like thinking about it and yeah. then i was like no the birth scene in red lips from a yeah. blue light that clicks okay cool got it um <laughs> oh, that whole that whole story <laughs> uh, it's so good um i also wanted to mention right after that uh i think we talked a little bit about springtime making sure that i'm using the right right title for the right story um that is the ones with the siblings right yeah that one has the two siblings and i found that really interesting because a lot of times you have passing references to siblings but you tend to talk more about moms and i found it really interesting one that it was a a story about the siblings at the center Mm-hmm. but also about the guilt of, you know, what the sister has done, but done in terms of, like, the ritual being even more of the focus of the story than, like, the revenge itself, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of, like, the opposite pacing in a really interesting way to how you'd usually uh, see that story. Right. It would be her coming back from the dead and killing all of the people, right? Right. Um, and so I just wanted to hear a little bit about the creation of that. Yeah, that was a weird one. I It was very based on the visuals, I think. Like, I was just being kind of haunted by these little images of this kind of lake of blue flame and, you know, all of the kind of lightning striking, you know, all of that sort of magical world that I think exists in that. I also appreciated that these are, yeah, the the terrible men make the commit the terrible crime, right? But there's something about that story that to me, it's like we almost always hear way too much from the guys. We see the torture, you know, like all of that. And it's like, I implicitly know that, you know, big groups of, of like toxic masculinity can be bad. <laughs> so it's like, I almost don't really want to focus on them like torturing this girl or like killing this girl or like her killing them because I feel like that really allows people to kind of get off on the violence of it, right? Like we have uh, something like Miss 45, which is these classic horror films where like somebody has something horrible done to them and then they take revenge. And it's like, there's still this kind of um, like over-sexualization happening, like regardless of where you stand in that movie, I think. And, you know, that's something to explore. I think that Miss 45 obviously is as famous as it is in, you know, cult film circles just because of how interesting it is. But there's also something to be said for like, why why is that the part? Because the fact that, you know, we have these stories all of the time, like uh, there's like a serial killer, the victims aren't focused on, the serial killer is, you know, things like that. And I feel like the way that this woman is treated as kind of collateral damage in the story, even by her own sister who truly loves her, like has to choose that she wants this violence and like she wants it more almost than she wants her sister to rest in peace, sort of. That's this character's story. I don't want to say like what it's like to lose somebody in that respect to like a extreme act of violence. Um, 
I don't think that that can be like a uniform, like a uniform experience for everyone. This character loses this person and it's almost like she has been waiting for this because you hear that they've been harassing her for a long time. And she like lets her guard down. She, the horrible thing that she can't stop happens. And she goes, I'm, I know what to do. But here's the thing. Everybody in this town knows where this place is, right? And they're not all bringing their deceased loved ones back from the dead to reign terror on the side, you know, the countryside. And the reason behind that is because it's a bad thing to do. <laughs> so it's kind of like this but woman making that choice. But it's kind of an awesome choice. thing to do, too. But it's, it's kind, kind of, of an awesome. awesome thing to do. But you also get the is... sense that her sister is suffering afterwards because of yes. it yeah. as well. Yes. It, it's, You're it's... killing her again, like, by bringing her back. Like, that's kind of the, the implication of the story. Which I think is always a really... I think it's, it's, you know, how many TV shows or movies have we watched where someone dies and you have this huge emotional experience and then they're like, and they're back. And listen, yeah. if it's Sarah Lance, I want to see it every fucking oh, time. Yeah, for sure. She needs to come back from the dead every time. It's her trip. Lazarus Pit. Throw her right in. <laughs> throw her in. Um, you know, it's like fine. That- That's never, there's nothing bad has ever happened from that. Never, not once. I have read that the Lazarus Pit is the best way to bring people back from the dead. So that's perfect. <laughs> They'll never become very evil. (laughs) You know, I think that there's just, there's something about, you're so careful. You walk these lines in this way that I find really pleasing, where you will kind of indulge our, let's, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, grimmer desires for vengeance, for blood, for whatever. You know, like, I'm sorry, I do want to see a bunch of people pay when they torture a woman to death. Mm-hmm. Is that my best self? Is that like what I want? Am I going to go kill someone with my hands? Like, no. A, I'm a wuss. B, <laughs> I'm very tired. <laughs> I can't do anything, <laughs> let alone kill someone. And so, you know, for just for the FBI listening, oh my God, why would I even <laughs> say that? Uh, but, I, you know, I can't have done it, officer. <laughs> I am too tired. <laughs> I am so you tired. <laughs> You heard the podcast, officer. <laughs> There's no way. I was I was recording the podcast because I'm so tired. Um, okay. But, you know, I think that there's this way that you kind of, in, like, it's almost like you dip your toes into that piece of horror. Like, you give us, like she says, like, the, the town ran with blood. You know, we can fill in those details because how many horror stories have we seen? How many mm-hmm. TV shows, movies have we seen where towns run with blood because someone is fucking pissed and uses a supernatural force? But I think there's something so powerful about pairing that with that pain like you were saying Danny of like to bring the sister back is and I think you said this Sarah is to kill her again and I I really love how much that hurts even as it feels like a sort of in you know I, I felt a little indulged by like the violence but then also it's like but only if you don't pay attention to these other lines that talk about how fucking bad it is and also with the conclusion of the sister being like I know by doing this by getting revenge I'm going to be a victim of it it makes the reader complicit Mm. because what happens is if you've been rooting for the violence and the sister is culpable then then you're like approving of it right yeah oh danny don't be so smart. You're making me have chills. Um, or I mean, Sarah, don't be. You, neither of you should be this insightful, okay? Sorry, sorry. I, once this is over, I just turn back on the himbo switch for the rest of the day. And just there will be nothing behind this brain. Yes. <laughs> oh, the himbo switch. 
Oh, my God. Okay, so Sarah, (laughs) the last story in your collection is The Little Things That Come and Go. And I would like to hear a little bit about that story. And because I, I think I found it so compelling and so it's so evocative of what it is to rent, of what it is to be displaced by gentrifying cities, what it is to be a body that is viewed as available for consumption. And I really, I I can't believe, I mean, I can believe it because there are a lot of variables in publishing. It's, you know, a lot of things that go into it. But you, in your afterwards, said that you've submitted this to every horror anthology and it's been rejected. So I want to talk a little, I want to hear a little bit about how do you know when a story is still good, even if you've resubmitted it so many times? How do you know that story is still, and good's not even the right word, still what you wanted to write? And then I want to hear about like the actual themes of the story and a little bit about what it's like to be in those um, precarious positions. I just can't get over this story. Like this is a story that really stuck with me. It spoke to a lot of the things that I was going through in a certain time that was genuinely kind of unsettling. And I couldn't let it go. It's such a weird concept, but it also is such a, to me, it's an important concept because this person is trying again and again to start over and there's no way for her to start over because things just keep piling up. Like she can't get rid of things. She can't not be the person that she is. Like there's parts of her that need to change and she doesn't know how to change them. And then you see this kind of reflection in her body, which is like in the backyard, like being devoured by ants. And that's saying that change is inevitable. You can't not change. You will be forced to change regardless of if you choose it or not. And to me, that was kind of, there's these kind of like heavier metaphors of the story, but there's a lot of personal stuff in it too, because I feel like this really reflects a moment of my life, even though it's kind of fantastical. There's just like this moment where I was struggling with a lot of the same things that this person is struggling with. And that to me was what made me really hang on to it because as much as it kept being rejected, I just kept being like, I can't let it go. Like, that's it. Like you can't, there's certain things where you're just like, it'll find a home somehow. Like even if I end up printing it in a zine or something and like, I just can't get over it. Like it's something that I think needs to be said in a horror story. I'd been watching Secret Ceremony. There's this movie with Elizabeth Taylor and Mia Farrow that I'm obsessed with. And it's truly like just this masterpiece of discomfort. There's so many uncomfortable themes in that movie. I In that way, it's hard to find. It's from 1968. It's not one that I always can recommend to people, but it's one that I am so haunted by because it's very much characters that interact with each other in this very brief moment. And it's so uncomfortable. And then they change in the way that they didn't want to change. Like they become, you know, alienated from one one another in very violent ways. So I thought that there was something of that movie that really found its way into that short too, basically. Are there plans for more stuff? I just want more. That's all I'm here for. (laughs) Yeah. I just wrote a short story called Owl Mask that's about a person in an owl mask that goes and kills a bunch of people. And the person who is also like, she kills a bunch of rich people. And there's a rich person who like thinks that she's awesome and wants her to keep killing all the rich people. So there is more (laughs) of basically this same thing on the horizon for sure. Well, and in that vein, Sarah, um, I know that we just recently did an adaptation of The Hollow Bones for mm-hmm. um, our audio, 
our narrative audio horror fiction podcast. I never know what order to put those words in. So if you hear it different every time, friends, just know I am also trying my hardest. Uh, but Sarah, I would I want to hear a little bit about that. You know, uh, I'll do some of the logistics so you can just be a brilliant artist and tell me about what is going on with that. But just for listeners, we launched a new audio horror fiction podcast in December of 2022. Kind of a soft launch because there's cool news coming and I can't even tell you it yet. But follow us on socials at Bitches on Comics, at Queer Spec, at Queer underscores, spec on Instagram, and we will be sharing soon. Very excited. But uh, we have started this new podcast called Decoded Horror Channel. And as I was saying, The Hollow Bones is one of the first five episodes of that. I think it's actually episode number five. And that is an adaptation with you doing voice acting. It's called The Hollow Bones, which obviously you would know if you've read the collection. Uh, So I just want to hear a little bit about, you know, where did this come from? You know, the short stories are collected under the title Graveyard Orbit. And then we also have this really cool narrative anthology that's going to be starting pretty soon here uh, called The Tales of the Sapphire Bay Hotel. So I really just wanted to have an excuse to hear, you know, people are going to get to hear the episodes, but this is a chance for us to hear from you, the mastermind behind all of it. You know, how did this come together? What were you doing why go horror radio has such a amazing history and i love horror radio like i've listened of course to all of the lights out the suspense the you know sorry wrong number like these are things that i truly love but i also love all of the modern stuff like black women are scary is incredible i you know have been on the No Sleep podcast. I love the No Sleep podcast to varying degrees. Sometimes I'm mad at the stories, but they also put out so many stories that it's like, I'm hooked. I'll buy every subscription forever. They, you know, sell subscriptions to their seasons. I've bought every single one and they're on, I think, season, they're about to go into 19. So I am dropping the money on the No Sleep podcast. Like I will probably continue listening to it as far as it goes. There are so many different horror podcasts. I think horror is one of those genres where sometimes people are like, I don't really like horror. And it's like, well, what kind of horror do you not like? Like, do you not like Hitchcock? Do you not like, you know, it's like, what kind of horror unsettles you specifically? Because there's so much horror in this world. Like you could do slashers, you could do, you know, there's just a lot of, a lot of degrees. Is it surrealist horror that you don't like? You know, there's just, there's so many things. Do you not like it when any element of horror is dropped into like, you know, a TV show? Like what, what exactly, where's the part, where do you draw the line, I guess, is like usually what my first question is, because that helps you (laughs) be able to choose a movie together, right? But I think that there's always something very interesting about how audio and horror interact. Obviously, if you watch a horror movie, I listen to horror soundtracks all of the time. The sound effects, the soundtracks, the music that's chosen, you know, these moments when they decide to be silent is so important too. And this is something where I believe that audio and horror just are, they go hand in hand for a lot of people, not for everyone, obviously. Uh, For a lot of people, it helps to kind of exenuate the situation. And I think that there's something really cool about that 
for me, I just listen to so much horror that at a certain point you have to just make the audio horror podcast because you've listened to every (laughs) episode of the 19 seasons of the No Sleep podcast. You've listened to you know, Limetown, you've listened to The Lighthouse, you've listened, you know, Essie, you know. I do know. Listen to Mabel, you know, like listen to all of these different podcasts, you know, scare you to sleep, like all of them. I listen to so much horror and I read so much horror and I watch so much horror. But I think that the audio plays have a specific uh, space in my heart because it's something where it really helps me kind of set the mood of a day. Like on a Saturday, you know, you get like the new episode of whatever podcast and you walk around the house like cleaning while you're like kind of playing with your rabbits, you know, like that kind of that kind of morning. And it's like, also, I'll just listen to this like spooky kind of well-paced audio horror while I'm doing it. And it kind of helps me be thinking and like interacting with the piece in a way like but it also stops me from being lost in my thoughts right like because the pace is still going it's not like reading a short story where I read like two pages and then I have to close the book and be like what did it mean (laughs) but like in (laughs) audio it's still the story is just booking right along right like so you kind of have your moments of being like oh I wonder what that meant and then you're like oh I'm in this moment now Um, I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate that I can listen to it as opposed to a movie where I'm just like, you know, kind of stuck to the screen Mm. with like a podcast. I can clean my house while I'm getting freaked out. Well, and it's still somehow so engulfing. You know, I was uh, talking to Maria Dong, who we talked to earlier this month for the podcast, actually in the last episode of Bitches on Comics. And we had adapted her story, The Deck, which was also published in Decoded Pride for decoded horror channel and she was like wow it's just so atmospheric and that's one of the things that i think you have a particular ear for obviously our amazing sound engineers we have two great folks behind the mic we've got obviously the lovely kate warner who does all of our editing for bitches on comics we love you kate and then we have the awesome nathaniel hubbard aka hub who is also contributing to these and doing just really great work. My Story Anomalous, also from Decoded Pride, issue two. Maria's was from issue one. I was so pleased with the adaptation. I was just like, oh my God, the whoosh is exactly how I imagined the whoosh in my mind. (laughs) And that is just, it's... It really does draw you in. So you might be cleaning a bathroom, but you're also like, oh, and I'm in a forest, you know? Like, I'm doing two things at once. And that, to Mm -hmm. me, is what makes fiction so delightful. Yeah, like heads up to the sound engineers 100%. Oh, hell yeah, they fucking cool. They surprise me constantly because I, as you know, am a fairly vague communicator. I love to just be like, I had this idea. Okay, goodbye. And then like talk about it again, follow it up. Maybe sometimes somebody is like, hey, what did you mean by that? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I don't know <laughs> that I ever said that. There's definitely like, oh, I had plans for this. Guess what? I don't have those plans now. I changed. But... <laughs> I'm definitely like that kind of person. And so kind of being able to be like, not only has, you know, um, Hub like listened to a ton of audio horror, but Kate has just this like wonderful ear for Sam mm-hmm. saying this because I know that Kate's going to listen to it. Yeah. You have to deal with the compliments, Kate. You can't, <laughs> it's, you can't stop us. <laughs> you can't stop us. You're not physically <laughs> here to keep me from saying nice things about you. <laughs> I know. Has a great ear for sound, Absolutely. right? In this way, like you would think that that is self-explanatory, but just knows how to stay subtle, like knows where to kind of drop things in a way that's not obtrusive to the story. 
And that's so key. And I think it's something that a lot of sound editors might like struggle with. There's a lot of also sound editors who do these incredible, like, I'm in the room with this, you know, like there's sound all around. You have to listen to it through your headphones. I think Hub and Kate are both like incredibly gifted in mm-hmm. making something that I can listen to on headphones. I can listen to it off of headphones. Yeah. And either way, it's like dragging you in, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and I, I think that's a testament, you know, now you have to deal with compliments, Sarah. So get over yeah. it. Um, I think it's a, a testament to the team that you've assembled to be Decoded Horror Channel, you know, like it's the short stories and the and the voice actors. It's the sound editing. It's also the Tales of the Sapphire Bay Hotel, which is this anthology story. I really want to hear it from your perspective because I've been like describing it to people, but I want to hear what you, how you describe it. It's really your brainchild and I feel really honored you've invited me in to write some episodes and that feels really fucking cool to have a concept given to you and then be like, look, Sarah, look how weird I am. (laughs) You're like, yes, you are weird and I like it. Or, you know, you are weird and also I don't think this thing is going to make sense if you don't do it this way. (laughs) You know, like that (laughs) sort of ability to bring people together. I would love to hear about that. But then I would also love to hear just specifically about Tales of the Sapphire Bay Hotel so I can get our listeners excited. I love to be able to just trust somebody to do the part that they're going to do. I think that there's something about me that doesn't necessarily lend well to being able to, like, I'm not somebody who can manage somebody to the extreme or something. Like, I can't really walk people through things uh, very well always, but I love to be like, please do the thing if you're excited about it. And if you're excited about it, I want to hear what you're excited about. (laughs) I would love to hear your part of this. And then that's where it becomes kind of a collaboration. But it's also like, I just want to know that they're going to do the part that they're going to do and like do it in a way that I would never have done it. I don't want it to be me. Like if you ask somebody else to do something, I think that people can be very protective of like their concepts. I never really feel that way because A, I'm just recycling concepts in general. Or I'm like taking different spins on different tropes or whatever. Like I don't, I don't feel like I'm like, you know, the the leader of ideas. But I also think that there's something really wonderful about the I would I don't know what it is. And I don't necessarily think that it's due to my world or like who I am. I think that I have been truly gifted at being able to find people who are just great at what they do. And who also maybe are in a place where they want to try something new. Like that's been kind of the magic combination. Like not only are they talented, but they also kind of want to play in a different sandbox than what they have been. And I'm like, cool. Well, I have 7,000 sandboxes. So please choose any one (laughs) and we'll talk, you know. Part of it is just trusting people, having faith in people, knowing people, you know, knowing that people are going to be able to do the thing that you're asking them to do and also will be able to do it in a way that you didn't ask, right? Like ways that are new, that sometimes present new challenges, but also overall are going to make it be the thing that is theirs and not necessarily yours, right? It becomes ours in a way. But you have this idea for the Sapphire Bay, which is this, you know, haunted hotel. Love the haunted hotel. That's all that is. Basically, like, straight up haunted hotel, ghost hotel, evil hotel. These are my favorites. Like I can't get over it. I love hotels that are evil. (laughs) Isolated evil hotels, like bad things are happening there. We all have memories, you know, like all of that favorite, favorite trope. I just love it. And having it 
next to the ocean, of course. And then there's like a weird sculpture garden in the hotel's property that's like overgrown and forgotten, but it comes back to life. Like these are all the metaphors that I just like, I will never get sick of them. And they're also like these tropes that kind of just keep giving. Like you have the setup of like weird hotel and it's like, well, I can go 700 seasons on that because if what happens in a hotel, you meet totally different cast of characters again and again and again. So it's just a perfect concept to me. And there was, and it, it, the rule system is like out the window. You don't have to have one really, other than like the sculpture garden is generally over there. But if you want to move it in your story, you can because it's make believe land. It's an evil hotel. It can move its sculpture garden. <laughs> It can move its sculpture garden. The sculpture garden moves. It's like one of those things. I love that stuff. But the concept in general has really just kind of been like, yeah, I love horror podcasts, but I haven't really seen one that has these kind of unique and specific ideas that I have, right? Like you see glimpses of it in other works, but you know, I want something to be queer, like regardless of how many queer anything there is, there needs to be more. And mm -hmm. that's kind of, double true in the world of horror podcasts. There's definitely representation. There's queer people who are working in this realm, but there should always be at least a little bit more queer themes. Haunted hotels deserve way more queer people in them, mm -hmm. right? Like this is, these are all things that I would like to see more queerness in. I would also just like to see a variety of people working on it. Having this kind of big group around me has been thrilling for that reason. Like you want to hear other people's ideas and kind of see where they run with things. You and I were talking about this once and, you know, like, I haven't listened to all the podcasts in the world, so how would I know? But in, in many ways, I've listened to many horror podcasts, thanks to Sarah, and I would say we have one of the most weird, diverse, trans, and queer casts ever. And and I say weird because we've made intentional choices to cast people in roles that as long as they're not going to cause gender dysphoria, right? We're not going to make yeah. anybody have a horrible life for a podcast. We're, you know, we're really like, okay, what what kind of people are you comfortable portraying? What what genders? Okay, great. We're going to plug you in here. We're going to plug you in here. We're going to plug you in here. And we, you know, we, we really have been so inclusive in that way. And I think it's incredible. I, I'm... I'm so in love with this process because it feels so fundamentally queer and trans. And I think that's something to be really proud of. And, you know, I, I just, that was one thing I wanted to point out. And then the other one was like, this is, these are full audio plays. The Tales of the Sapphire Bay Hotel, it is, it's like listening to an old radio horror show. You're going to hear sound effects, all those pieces, but also there's different actors. It's not a narrator in some cases, there are narrators, but they're not like it's not the same way the short stories from Graveyard Orbit are. And I think it's it's going to be really exciting to see, you know, how long have we been working on Sarah? Three years? We've been actively. That's after you sort of crafted the idea and workshopped it a bit. Like we've three years of writing. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been a long time. And it's hard to write an audio play. Like it just is. It's not as easy as you would think. You really have to lean into the dialogue and the setting of the scene, I guess, in ways that it's like the way that we learn things is through the dialogue for the most part. So it's kind of this different vibe, I guess. Mm. And you have to write so much of different people's voices and how they'll interact with each other. I wanted to say too, yeah, it's like kind of the roles that are being cast are ones where I kind of sit there and think about it. But I also think that in a lot of fiction, there's a tendency like when you're like writing 
for a lot of different people that like, you know, if there's like a trans person in the story, they're like, hello, it's I, the trans person, you know, like they always want to like tell you about it. Like the (laughs) scriptwriter thinks it's very important to like emphasize that. And I think like we just have a very trans cast. And so it makes it be like, yeah, clearly like, you know, trans people are being cast all across the roles, you know, and in a way that doesn't necessarily have to be like, huh, yes, I wrote my trans character today or something, you know, like I did the one, we only have the one. And it's like, honestly, whenever you're writing these stories, any of your characters could be trans generally, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's specific skill sets, you know, like there's definitely different like viewpoints and understandings that might come from having a character that is specifically written as trans, but it's not necessarily like you couldn't be open to that idea, right? So I, I think that there's something about that. That's so good, Sarah. I'm so glad you said that because you're de- you're dead on. Like there are definitely trans characters where their transness is a piece of their story, and then yeah. there's tons of trans characters where it's not. That way. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's so cool. I'm just I'm really excited for listeners to hear it. I'm really proud of the work we've done. I'm really proud of, the, of what you've put together and. I'm just like, oh, man. Oh, man. Everyone's going to freak out. Everyone's going to freak the fuck out. I can't wait. I can't Uh, wait. You're all going to be so happy. It's so fun to work on, isn't it? Like, uh, it's one of the most fun things that I do. Just, like, even getting to be like, oh, we're all playing in the same sandbox, but, like, look at how your interpretation is so different from mine. Look at how, you know, this actor, this line that I wrote this way, they delivered it this way, and that's so much better. You know? Like, that's so much better than what I would have done. You put 20 people in a sandbox and tell every one of them to make a castle, and none of the castles look the same. Yeah. It's cool. It's cool. Well, yes, um, obviously you can learn more about Decoded Horror Channel by heading to wherever you listen to podcasts and typing in the whole Decoded Horror Channel. It will pop up. Or you can head to decodedpride.com. We have a whole section dedicated to Decoded Horror Channel, and you can listen to episodes there or wherever you get your podcasts. Wow. Holy crap. Sarah, please... um, I was going to say stop blowing my mind, but I actually think I want you to blow my mind all the time. Like, please continue to write these, these this stories. This was super and, fun. Oh, so cool. And Danny, thank you for being here. You asked so many questions where I was like, fuck, I'm so glad I asked Danny to be here. <laughs> I, was, I was really enjoying it. Like, I mean, obviously talking to you guys anyway, but I think that there, there was a lot to dig in with these stories. So I'm yeah. really happy to have done it. They're really something special. Well, Sarah, um, we have your info in the closing credits, but just in case people don't get to that point, will you tell folks where they can find you online and where they can learn more about A Small Light and other stories? Yeah, I have a website, sarahcentury.com. Also, you can follow me, obviously, at all of the Queer Spec projects. If you want to pick up A Small Light and Other Stories, which I personally think you should, it's <laughs> an anthology that is available on the Weird Punk shop so while you're at the weird punk shop please look around there's so much good stuff on there and if you're a fan of a small light i would say that it's obviously a unique book in any context but i think too that there is a lot of other stuff on that site that you might want to check out and a lot of like a lot of writers a lot of queer writers. I think it's just a great shop. And, you know, Sam's always doing so much for indie horror. So I just highly recommend checking it out. Of course, you can also buy it on Amazon if you like. And it's going to be available in PDF form as well on Amazon. So knock yourself out whenever it comes to that. And I'd say that that's about it. You know, go listen to Decoded Horror Channel and... (laughs) Just stay tuned. There's so many other things in the works always. So we'll see. We'll see how things go, right? 
And if you want to learn more about weird punk books, we highly recommend checking out episode 141, Like a Punk Label. That's where we sit down with publisher Sam Richard of Weird Punk Books and talk about what it's like being a horror publisher, being a punk horror publisher, and uh, have a good time. Sarah and, and Sam get into it. It's pretty cool. So I'm mm-hmm. excited for you all to tune into that and everything else we have going on. Danny, uh, oh my God, thanks for being here as our special guest host. You rule. If people yeah. want to learn more about you and what you're up to, because you're always up to something, <laughs> where can yep. they find you? All of my schemes and plans, uh, which are truly not nearly as exciting as that sounds, can be found uh, usually through Twitter, uh, W-E-R-E-D-A-W-G-Z for wear dogs, because I have a brand and it's werewolves. Uh, aside from that, I'm creeping everywhere. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> if you didn't have a pen, listeners, don't worry. I will put both Sarah and Danny's info in the show notes so you can just hit the three dots next to the title of the episode and then go down there and click on the links. Links galore. Have a good time clicking around. Okay, so if you want to hear more from Danny, our hero, you can check out episode 45, episode 110, and then episode 124, which is a really cool one with Danny, Natasha Alterisi, and then Jay Edidin. So yeah, come, you know, we're not going to let go of Danny. Danny will be back. Danny's like part of the oh, family. Oh yeah, save me, know? please. <laughs> you and Monica have both said that on different episodes and I have to do my disclaimer, which is Danny is here of their own free will. We have not captured Danny. Please do not think that is what we are doing. They pay me good money to agree with that. I mean, what? <laughs> Oh, Lord. Thank you, Kate, for making us sound amazing and cutting out all the times I flubbed. Thank you so much, Monica. We love you. We miss you. Can't wait to see you soon. I'm actually I'm going to be interviewing someone with Monica this week. I'm so excited. And I am just so happy for our listeners. So grateful for our patrons. Love you, Sarah. Love you, Danny. Love you all. Have a great day. Yeah. You're listening to Bitches on Comics, distributed by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Find more shows like Bitches on Comics by following Realm on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at realm.fm. Thank you for listening to Bitches on Comics. We are a bi-weekly podcast where we talk to your favorite comics and pop culture creators and critics about what matters to them in comics and pop culture, as you might have guessed. You can follow us on Twitter at at BitchesOnComics and on Instagram at at BitchesOnComics. Our website is, brace yourself, BitchesOnComics.com. If you go there, you can listen to any of our episodes. And we've got other shit that we put on tabs. I don't remember what it is. I am in charge of updating the website, however, so good luck. (laughs) Thanks for the heads up. I'll go to this website now. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also support the podcast by joining us on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash queerspec to learn more. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. I'm Monica Estrella Negra, and you can find me at 
audreysrevenge.com or on Twitter at Audrey Revenge. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.